reminder, this is a pre-recorded show for uh, Wavemakers, and we will not be taking phone calls. Support for Wavemakers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Tom and Janet, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And running the board today is recovering journalist John Dunn. Answering phones is always cool DJ Spaceship. If you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and DJ Spaceship will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. We've been away for three weeks. Uh, We just got back from an amazing trip to Morocco. It was an eye-opening experience in so many ways. Uh, But we're happy that we can return with one of my favorite people who has been making waves in Florida for decades. Bill Maxwell is a former columnist and editorial writer for the St. Pete Times, a native Floridian who grew up as a migrant farm worker, got involved in the pivotal 1964 civil rights movement in St. Augustine, and managed to survive an encounter with the devil in the grove himself, the infamous Sheriff Willis McCall. Bill has also been an artist in residence in the Florida Everglades, which deepened his love for Florida's fragile and battered ecosystem. Welcome to Wavemakers, Bill. Thank you. Bill, we hope to cover all of that in the next hour. And if you'd like to ask Bill a question or comment on what you hear, again, you can call us at 813-239-9663 or send an email to dj at wmnf.org. And Bill, let's start with your latest book, Maximum Vantage, which recently won a silver silver medal in the Florida Book Awards. Mm -hmm. Uh, The book is a collection of your columns from the St. Pete Times, from which you retired four years ago. Uh, We know a lot of people miss your columns. Um, What prompted you to publish uh, this book of essays? Well, what prompted me? Uh, uh, It wasn't my idea, actually. Uh, the first uh, the first book was uh, Maximum Insight. Uh, one, of, one of my colleagues at the at, uh, at Santa Fe College, when, when I was teaching there uh, in the eighties and nineties, uh, told me that uh, there were great columns in the, in the Gainesville Sun and the Fort Pierce Tribune. He said, "You know, Bill, we should uh, we should do a book." I said, "Okay." So he contacted people at the Florida Press, uh-huh. and uh, they are the ones who encouraged me to put uh, them together, which I did. And the same thing this time. Uh, since we had done columns from 94 to 2000 or 1999, uh, why not uh, uh, finish and finish out all the columns? So it really was not my idea, but I thought it was a good idea once it was suggested to me. So that's how that came about. How did you choose what to include in the book? How? How did you choose which columns to include? Because you wrote a lot of columns during that yeah. time. Yeah, I wrote a, two a week for many years. Right. Um, 20, 25 years, I think you were yeah. at the Times? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I was an editorial writer at the time. Uh, Bill joined uh, the newspaper right. and joined the editorial board, and he was just an amazing uh, voice uh, on, the, on the editorial board and within the newspaper. Those of you who remember him, I know you, you remember him fondly. 
but well, well, a lot of people um, help me with it. Uh, you know, I, I would ask people which ones you think should be in there, and uh, so it came from a lot of people. And of course, I was involved in the in the process, but it's not all my uh, selection. A lot of people were involved who read them, so you know they were. You, you know, what are your favorite ones? And someone would say, well, this, that. So that's pretty much how it came about. Are there any in there that are your particular favorites? Um, uh, yeah. Um, uh, there are several. Uh, one about Jeb Bush. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Uh, is that the Dear Jeb uh, yeah. letter? Uh, another is um, all of the environmental ones are my favorites. Okay. That's, that's something that's important to me. The, the, the ones about race, uh, I was always reluctant to write, as a matter of fact. Why is that? Um, because um, um, they're mostly engender bitterness from people, mm -hmm. from a lot of people. People who agree with you, that's the choir. They agree with you. But that's not really who I was writing for. I was trying to get people to pay attention and to listen to the voices out there that are being abused. And that really makes people, a lot of people angry. In fact, I recall that uh, when you got to the Times, there was some, um, let's call it disagreement among some of the black staffers at the Times about the fact that you had been hired and you were going to be writing a column. Um, mm -hmm. What was that like? It was, um, well, uh, it was hostile, actually. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it also filtered down into, to, into the community. So, you know, because the people who were opposed to my being there were influential uh, in, in St. Petersburg. So it became, uh, became a universal uh, bad person. What was the opposition? What, was, what, what did people object to? Why did they not think that you should be writing for the Times? Well, um, I, I have a perspective on race and self-reliance that a lot of people don't share. Uh, first of all, um, I was accused of being, still am, an Uncle Tom, and they don't know what an Uncle Tom is, really. Um, but what happened is uh, I believe that um, the U.S. is a racist place, very racist, and uh, it is not going to change. It's going to remain racist. As a result, you must take care of yourself. You still have to feed your children, you have to send them to school, and you have to live a good life. And so that's up to you. That's your message to, to the black community? Or? That's to everybody. To everybody. Especially black people. No read, one, read no one your gives children. a damn about you. I remember one of the things you used to talk about was, you got to read to your children. Yeah. You got to so, take, take care of your property. I think a lot of folks felt like you were being overly critical of, the, of your own community. No, I would not be. And the point is that... Uh, uh, why not live in a beautiful, decent environment? You can make that happen. I can make it. I, did, I make it happen. And it's pretty easy to make happen if you want it to happen. So that's my message to people. And that was very uh, hated by a lot of people. And by the way, I got to tell you, uh, you were in the newsroom with me. Um, many of my white colleagues uh, uh, did not like that message either. They went along with the uh, the black people who were... The strong ones in the newsroom, they're friends, uh, and uh, that's what, so I became the enemy when, in fact, my whole point is you have to take care of yourself. No one else is going to do it for you. But fortunately, you had an editor who backed you, right? Phil, Phil Gailey. No, no, no Phil, Phil was fine. Yeah. 
Phil Gailey he, he hired me. He backed you me. up. He, he supported you. Yeah, yeah, Phil supported me. Phil hired me, and uh, he supported me the whole time I was there. So Phil and I never had any real uh, any disagreements about, uh, not to each other. I don't know what he said behind my back, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, but, I think but, he had his back. To, but we got along really me, well. I tell you that. We yeah, yeah. Well. I think he was a he was a staunch supporter of yours, and I admire. Yeah. Um, let's get back to you mentioned that one of your favorite columns is is your letter to Jeb Bush, um, and tell us about that. Did was it your favorite at the time, and did you find as you were putting the or did you find that as you were putting this book together that 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 column resonated even more in 2023 than it did when you wrote it to the former governor? Well, it, it, you know, very much, not much has changed in Florida. Uh, governor DeSantis has picked up where Jeb left off and, and uh, actually uh, intensified it. So it was, a, it was telling Jeb that uh, uh, you're really hurting a lot of people who, um, the poor, the migrants, uh, and others. You know, it, it, was a, it was a message to them that in a state that depends on certain populations, you are, in fact, uh, making life difficult for uh, these populations. And it's still going on. The governor right now is making it very hard for uh, people in Immokalee, people in Belle Glade, people in, uh, you know, uh, uh, many of the places where migrants are doing the heavy lifting for us. So we, we, we don't have a sense of... Uh, taking care of them and giving them the kinds of uh, uh, rights that they deserve. Right now, you can go to Immokalee and you will find places where people in the fields still don't have fresh water. They still don't get uh, breaks in, 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 in the hot sun. Mm-hmm. And it should happen. And it's not happening in many places. Which is amazing because that's where Harvest of Shame, the famous documentary by Edward R. Murrow, that's right. was filmed. And in some ways, it sounds like things haven't really improved that much. And that was, that was the early 60s. I in guess. the 60s. Yeah. Right. Uh, no, things have and not... You, you were probably there, too. I, I was there. I yeah. was in Immokalee. I was in Belgrade. I was in uh, Homestead. So I worked in all of those places. Fort Pierce, you named them. You know, so uh, not very much has changed. Back then, the workers were, were probably mostly African-American. And now they, were, they, were mostly, uh, they were mostly black. And now uh, but, but then, it, uh, once in 1964... The Civil Rights Act was passed. We could go inside and work. <laughs> so many of us left the fields. I never, I never worked in the field again after I could work in a restaurant and be a waiter. Why go in the hot sun if you could be inside? Right. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about that later about your roots. You started as a, a migrant farm worker. Um, that was how you, you started your, your life and obviously rose to, to great things. Um, one of the things that my understanding, the letter to the, to the governor was all, Jeb Bush was also about the education system and how, and what, in light of that, what do you think about what's happening now with our education system and teaching history, teaching African-American history? If you were to be writing a column about that now, what might you say about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that, uh, you know, Jeb Bush's kids went to private school, but I thought that then they were trying to privatize our public school system. You know, the, the whole voucher program got its genesis back in that era. So I, I, I just assumed that we were going to be right now where we are. And I thought that what they were doing to our school system was exactly what would happen, where my money is going to 
uh, homeschooling. My, my money is going to uh, charters. My school, my money is going to all of that. And I don't think that is the way it was set up. The Constitution, I don't think, supports that. Private schools, they don't have to meet the same standards as public schools. That's, that's right. So, yeah. but your, your column was also about the way teachers were being treated. Yeah, right? teachers were, yeah, well, you know... It's happening still. Teachers were not getting the respect they needed. The, the pay is still abysmal. Uh, the, the workload is abysmal. So uh, not very much has changed. And so uh, lack of respect, I think, is at the core of why so many teachers are leaving the, uh, the system. It's not just a matter of, uh, of, of the pay being low. It's just generally we don't respect uh, the, the role of a teacher, and it hasn't really changed. And it started with, uh, with, with the, the power of the Republicans gaining uh, that kind of control over, over the school system. And how did Jeb Bush react to that column? Oh, he got very angry. He, uh, he uh, wrote to me, and so, uh, but it was, it was, uh, he was angry. So what, what else can I say? Yeah. I can't repeat that. It's been so long ago, I forgot <laughs> what Jeb said. But uh, um, he was angry. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest today is former St. Pete Times columnist Bill Maxwell, who still is doing a lot of writing, very prolific, continues to share his uh, viewpoints through a variety of different um, outlets. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, uh, if you want to pose a question to Bill or you comment on anything that you hear, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email to dj at wmnf.org. The other thing that you mentioned were your columns about the environment that you said that you like very much that are in um, the book Maximum Vantage. Um, tell us about that, the um, environmental issues that you have seen over the years and uh, where that comes from. I would imagine some of that comes from your background as being a farm worker that you feel yeah. that close to Florida's environment. Yeah, a lot of it did. We know we were, we were in the environment uh, all the time. As a matter of fact, uh, we uh, most places we went, we either stayed uh, uh, in uh, uh, shacks that were open to the environment, uh, and we cooked outside. Uh, everything we did, so the great outdoors became uh, a friend, really. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, that, that, that's that's where my uh, my comfort was. So uh, as I grew um, older. I uh, began to realize that there is a thing called the environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I be, actually I wanted to be a, a ranger at one point. And, oh, okay. Uh, and uh, when I was in high school, I actually wrote to uh, Lake City Junior College. was the only school in the state of Florida that had uh, a ranger forest program. So I wrote to them and asked if I could uh, uh, get in. And I couldn't because they did not uh, accept black people, Negroes at the time. So there was nowhere for me to go. Well, so I put that aside and it went on with my life. But uh, I always return to the national parks, the state parks. Uh, even now, you know, I do that. You know, I spend my time as much outside as I can. So it became a friend. But the other thing is this. No matter where I lived, St. Petersburg is a good example. The worst kinds of environmental problems are in the black community. Uh, right now, you find the industrial sites where there may be brown brown sites. They're in black places. In Fort Lauderdale, um, one of the schools I went to, uh, before integration, uh, the wastewater plant was next to my school. 
and we had brown water in our school. Mm -hmm. When the school was integrated, they shut the school down and it became something else because white kids came to that school. So pretty clear to me um, that, that the environment uh, has always been part of my life. In, in Mascot, Florida, the, uh, uh, the city dump was in the black area. In Crescent City, the city dump was in the black area. So I knew as a child that the environment uh, was everything. That if you didn't take care of it, you didn't take care of yourself. Sorry, the two issues that you write about intersect, environment and race. Yeah. Environmental racism. Yeah, there is, you know, there's environmental racism in America. You know, anyone who denies it is a, is a liar. You know, it happens. And, and you were involved in the civil rights movement uh, in the 1964 St. Augustine right. uh, movement, right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Jan and I were there recently and took a tour and... Uh, saw the slave market, right? Uh -huh. Saw the slave market. We stopped uh, at the swimming pool where right. uh, the owner threw in acid. Right. And that photo appeared on the front page of a Washington newspaper the next day. And it right. apparently helped pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It did. But what was, uh, what, what, what was your role and how did you get involved in that? Um, I got involved uh, through invitation. I was uh, asked by, we had, uh, I, I was at Wiley College in Marshall, Texas as a freshman. And we had an SCLC uh, member come there. SCLC, Southern, Southern Christian, Christian Leadership, Leadership Conference. Conference. Okay. And um, asked for people to uh, come to Florida uh, to, to volunteer um, as, as activists. So um, because I was from Florida and I had been involved in the, uh, in the wait-ins in Fort Lauderdale, uh, I was asked to come and, and join. And my, uh, one of my classmates was from Hastings which is near St. Augustine. Yep. And he had a car. Potato so, capital of um, Florida. So he brought both of us down to uh, St. Augustine, and we got involved in the movement there. Uh, Dr. Haling. Uh, the dentist. Pardon me? Is that the dentist in St. Yeah. Augustine? Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he was there, and he had a uh, very influential uh, man. He An has, organizer. He was he organizing. He organized the, uh, 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 a sit-in already and marches. So we... We joined him, and it was dangerous because many of the deputies, uh, many of the cops in St. Augustine were also Klansmen, and that's documented. Yes, you that know, is not a joke. That is real. So it was a very dangerous place to work. Uh, you're looking at someone who comes supposedly to help you, when in fact he's there to hurt you or even kill you. And so uh, it, was, uh, it was a place where... Um, you, you did not want to be. And Dr. Haling told us to arm ourselves. He was a NAACP uh, uh, a president, but he did not believe in uh, uh, Gandhi. He thought that we needed to uh, protect ourselves because the people wearing the uniforms had the badges on and the caps on. They really were the guys who wore robes uh, on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So we were, it was a very bad place. Dr. King even said, it was the most racist place uh, he had ever been to. St. Augustine, Florida. St. Augustine, Florida. I just want to repeat that. We're talking about St. Yeah. Augustine, Florida, that all this happened there in the summer of 1964. Right. And Martin Luther King was arrested there. He was arrested. And they, they now, one of the things that's interesting about St. Augustine is how much in the last 10 years they've changed the way they present the history there they, they did yes because it's to their credit to their they credit. used to ignore it completely right ignore it. so now they have in the hotel where um 
Martin Luther King spoke and where, the where, acid was where these, there the were some pool. kids who right. were trying to integrate the swimming pool were swimming right. and the owner threw acid in the swimming pool to get them out. That's the photo that Tom was talking about that was on the front yeah. page of national newspapers that right. ended up influencing the ne- the vote on the uh, Civil Rights Act. But now they are mem- commemorating that. I think they only put that in in the last few years yeah. where they actually have a plaque there. Mm-hmm. Where you mentioned the slave market. Right. They do have the slave market there, but they took down the Confederate monument down, and yeah. put up a monument for... Um, well, Andrew Young, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a, a marker there's there. There's a marker there for Andrew, Andrew Young, Young was who was beaten, beaten there. And yeah. I think it's just... St. Augustine, Florida, that I think people just aren't even aware that that was such a pivotal place well, in the civil rights movement, and you were there. Yeah. Well, if it were up to the current governor, uh, you wouldn't know any of that happened, you know. <laughs> so it's, uh, well, it's, it's I mean, St. Augustine got to be... Uh, uh, they, they must be given credit for for being yep. uh, being very smart. About it is an that. uncomfortable conversation, let's face it, because it, some right. nasty things happened there. Exactly. And you know, the, the thing about it is it wasn't that long ago. Not that long ago. And there ago. were people there who were supporting the racists right. and the clans who were still living they're there. Still and living they're still living there. And they're your neighbors. Right. They're, you know, if you live there, you know who they were. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and, and by the way, uh, uh, Lincolnville... Lincolnville, Lincolnville was really uh, one of the most segregated places in the country. I mean, as a matter of fact, uh, we uh, I, I lived there for a, a couple of weeks, and we, once we left the uh, the neighborhood, we were we were fair bait for anyone who, who was white, and many whites would stand on certain corners and dare you to leave Lincolnville. So it was uh, it was just that violent. And uh, the, that dentist that you worked with uh, is now a revered figure in St. Augustine history. Right. Uh, but after all this happened, uh, and the 64 Civil Rights uh, Act was passed, he had to leave St. Augustine. Right. He left. He moved to, I think he went to Tallahassee, anywhere, somewhere in North Fork, yeah. a long way away. Yeah. Didn't return for, for decades. Right. There was no need to be there. Bad, bad memories, you know. Yes, <laughs> so absolutely. You, tell us about that period of time in your life. So you mentioned the wait-ins. You did wait-ins in Fort Lauderdale, and that is um, when there, black people would go out and go to the beaches that they were prohibited from going to, right? right? So you did that in Fort Lauderdale, and how old were you then? Uh, let's see. I was 15, 15 or 16. 15, 16. What happened to you? Were you arrested? or? Uh, no, I never got arrested, but uh, I got chased a few times. We all did. As a matter of fact, the FBI uh, came down and put uh, uh, about 20 uh, people around us to protect us because there were some local Klansmen who they thought were in some of the hotel rooms who were going to shoot us on the beach. So we were actually in fear the Uh. whole time. And I, I I, I don't know if there were, but the FBI thought that there were people who were armed who were going to fire on us uh, on the beach so it was a it was it was scary and what made it so bad is that it was local it was your hometown it was where you lived and you were afraid to be <laughs> uh, on the water in your own t- just imagine that integrating the Atlantic Ocean I mean think about yeah. it. <laughs> the damn ocean yeah and, and right. we had to have cops to come to protect us on the ocean. Right. You know. So that's when you were 15, then you went away to college and you, you were recruited to come to St. Augustine and participate right. in 
the um, civil rights activities there. So what exactly did you do there? Were you were you doing marches? Were you? No, well, I uh, marched one time. I went I went door to door trying to get people to either register to vote or to come to our rallies. See, we had rallies all the time. Dr. Haley made a point of making sure that we stayed in the public eye because he was really trying to attract Dr. King to come down, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Were the rallies in uh, the square downtown or in Lincolnville? or They were, they were anywhere we felt that we could uh, pull it off. Safely? I, yeah. yeah, safely. Yeah. Well, so. speaking of safety, uh, you had an encounter with uh, one of the most notorious racists in Florida history, Willis yeah. McCall. Uh, who's the subject of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Devil in the Grove. Tell us about that. Well, uh, I have family in Lake County right now, in Sumter County also, uh, born in, and, 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 and reared there. Uh, so I had, and I lived in, in, in Mascot as a child off and on, you know, because my mother was from there. And uh, we, so I lived there uh, often. And Willis McCall was the sheriff from the, the 40s through uh, 1972, yeah, yeah, insane. So a long, long time. A long time. And he was the most vicious person that uh, you know that we knew. Um, he hated black people, um, uh, and he, he made a point of keeping us in line. And that's one thing you knew. Uh, whenever Caboose McCall uh, is in his car, it's best for you to go and disappear because uh, he would find a way to um, harass you. And as you know, he killed, you know, he, he killed Sammy and some other uh, yeah. two yep. more people. So uh, you can't make up a story about Willis McCall. But I only had one encounter with him, which is what I described in an article I wrote uh, recently. Uh, we were stopped one day by Willis, and um, he actually slapped um, one of the people working with me, a, wh- a white male from New York, uh, uh, and he threatened to kill us. Because we were trying to register people to vote in Tavares. And he told us to never come back again uh, to Lake County. If we did, it'd be the last thing we did on this side of, uh, uh, of the ground. He pulled you all, y'all were in a car. And he he pulled, pulled us over, over in, his, in his vehicle. And you knew what was happening, right? You knew who it was. Yeah, I'm was from Florida, so I yeah, knew so what knew. was going on. My, my white friend from uh, uh, New York did not know what was going on. But uh, I told him uh, to shut up. Uh, don't do not be a New Yorker with this man because he's not one, and he will kill us. And he literally he pulled his weapon. Were you scared? Uh, a, yes. Oh yeah. yeah. I was scared until I realized later that um, he was a, a caricature of everything that I'd, I'd ever heard about Willis McCall. But listen, Willis McCall also uh, brutalized my relatives too. Uh, he he actually uh, beat uh, two of my uncles. Uh, so. We were all very aware of who the man was. And he lived in Umatilla. You know, he didn't live that far away. He was always there, always. And you saw that big hat, that big white Stetson, you knew that you were, <laughs> you were doomed. Stunning that he actually was sheriff until the 1970s. Just yes. blows my mind. We've got um, a caller on the line, Charlie. We're going to get to you in just a second. If you would like to join our conversation with Bill Maxwell, author Bill and uh, writer Bill Maxwell, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send an email to dj at wmnf.org. And Charlie in St. Pete, you are on the line. What's up? Well, I was uh, just wanted to say I was a big fan of uh, Mr. Maxwell's columns in the St. Pete Times. Uh, I'm a journalist myself and a big fan of 
of quality uh, writing of that kind. And it's a real shame that they slim down the paper to where they don't feel they have the space for, for that kind of thing anymore. Um, and you mentioned uh, that Mr. Maxwell continues with his writing, and I wonder if he could, uh, uh, before the show is over, give us uh, some examples of where we can go to read uh, read some uh, of your current writings. Um, yeah, sure. Well, we, first of all, he has a, a book out right now called "Thanks for the Call, Charlie." Um, Thank you. We've got he's got a book out called "Maximum Vantage." That and where is where can people get that available? Book? Probably on Amazon. Is it available on Amazon? Amazon? Also at Tombolo Books. Books in St. Pete. In St. Pete. Um, and, um, and that is a collection of columns, but um, Bill's doing new work for Florida Humanities Magazine, Forum, the magazine of Florida Humanities. Some of those works are online, um, so uh, you can look there or you can subscribe to the magazine and you'll be able to hear, see his writing. As a matter of fact, he did um, an incredible column about that summer of 1964 and his experiences in St. Augustine and mm-hmm. also with Willie McCall and Willis McCall. Willis and, McCall, yeah. yeah. So um, that's a, a good place. And then he's got something coming out in uh, the spring about playing football in a segregated high school. Jim Crow, yes. During the Jim Crow era, so we might be able to talk a little bit and, more and about that. And do you have some uh, work in uh, a new collection? A, a new collection, right, of um, the Florida Humanities um, put out an anthology uh, to celebrate its 50th anniversary, 50 years of stories about Florida. And in that is um, Bill's story, um, Parallel Lives, which he wrote in conjunction with um, Beverly Coyle, a a white woman Mm -hmm. um, in St. Pete. And they both wrote about growing up on the opposite sides of the tracks, Mm -hmm. Bill in the black community, Beverly in the white community. And that turned into a stage performance. They actually traveled around the state and it turned into a staged reading mm-hmm. to explore those issues. You're, and, you're some good company in that uh, book, I think. Yeah. I, I, I have a well, the book, ha- I, uh, yeah, and the Buchanan and all kinds of, yeah, it's a very um, renowned writers that are in there, including including Bill Maxwell, so we're glad to have you, you here. And that book also is available, I believe, on Amazon. Um, We've got, um, I want to read a couple emails. DeMarco um, told us that he just is trashing Bill, uh, Jeb Bush, and calling No Child Left Behind. Um, Every Child Left Behind, I think is what he calls it. Um, Oh, and he wants to know, did you know Stetson Kennedy? DeMarco is asking you, you, did you know Stetson Kennedy? uh, uh, Not well, no. No, I I forget. I, I actually reviewed one of his books. I forget which one it was. He wrote so many. I forget which one it was. <laughs> and he also, I believe, is featured in that anthology, the um, right. Florida Humanities. But no, I don't know him well, no. 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 Um, and then um, uh, we've got another email from somebody who says, at the beginning, your guest said he was called an Uncle Tom for feeling that people should focus on themselves, but he seems to be a proponent for liberal ideas that support the rights of others. So clarify, what was it, Bill, that... You, the, what point were you making that caused people to call you an Uncle Tom? Um, you know, the fact that you, if, you, if you use the word, the, the term um, self-reliance, uh, responsibility, automatically among a lot of people, uh, you are putting them down. Mm-hmm. No, it's not what I'm doing at all. What I'm saying is that you don't have anywhere else to go except to yourself uh, to get things done. And let me just say this, you know, and I, and I, I believe it deeply. Uh, white people are not going to do a damn thing for you. Nothing. 
So do it for yourself, period. Um, uh, Elijah Muhammad believed it. And he's a black Muslim. He believed it. So I'm I'm more of a black Muslim than I am anything else. I believe in take care of yourself, period. Because no one else would do it for you, including the God you believe in. God is not going to take care of you. Mm-hmm. You take care of yourself. Now, if that's being a knock on time, then damn it, that's what it is. But the fact is that it is not uh, uh, real, you know, and then too many people believe it. And if, as a matter of fact, I get very angry thinking that there is something uh, illegitimate about saying that you should be self-reliant. That angers me. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the Black Panthers believe the same thing. That's exactly they? it. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's exactly it. Now, yeah. who calls Black Panthers Uncle, Uncle Tom's? Tom's? Right. You know, cut it out. When you were out there marching, <laughs> you know, you were knocking, yeah, on, door, knocking on doors and and participating in but those. Bill came to these views after paying his dues. I mean, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. wait in St. Augustine, encounters with Willis McCall, registering voters at a time where it was dangerous just to knock on doors and try to collect signatures, yeah. right? Yeah. Just trying to register to vote. Uh, you know. Yeah. I've got a, um, an email uh, with a question for you, Bill. Um, this is from Ziggy, who says, my take on school vouchers is they are to provide healthy market-based competition, as is the case in all sectors of our economy. Also, to level the playing field so that poor kids can go to the same schools as the rich kids. I am a product of eight years of Jesuit education, and all kids should be able to go to Jesuit high schools. The Pope is a Jesuit, and they are the best teachers in the world. Why should not poor kids get vouchers to go to a Jesuit high school. What is your take, Mr. Maxwell? Uh, I have no problem with that, but just don't universalize it. I don't want my tax money going to a Jesuit school. Well, uh, rich kids are getting them now. Yeah, I mean, I mean the current by the way, I don't know who the young the person is, but let me tell you, uh, our schools are more segregated now than they were when Dr. King was alive. And, and that, really is, that really is because of privatizing our system, you know, and a lot of these schools really are not good schools, by the way. The Jesuit schools may be fine, but I can t- walk you to places that really do not deserve my tax money. And I sympathize with his viewpoint, and I believe I wrote the first editorial at the St. Pete Times yeah. suggesting that charter schools are, are something that they ought to try. kind of went, got out of control in the way as much money as they spent on it, but they don't have the same standards for private schools as public schools. The public schools are being held at a much higher standard, so it's not really fair competition. No, I don't think so either. And uh, also the... Uh, the, the private schools are very selective. Public schools take all comers. I mean, mm-hmm. because they're public. You know, so... <laughs> and I think that in the bedrock of this country has been and is public education. And we were the envy of the world. And I don't know what we think we're doing if we're going to continue uh, to, to, to privatize it. I think you're probably a perfect example of that. Somebody who grew up as a migrant farm worker. Yeah. In Jim Crow school. In Jim Crow schools, but you got an education. Yes. And that was your your ticket to success. Right. And I can tell you this. Um, and the, the piece I just wrote for uh, the magazine. One of the big deals in, in, in the piece I just wrote about Jim Crow in Florida, especially playing football, is that our teachers were all black. They all, they all came from HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. And, and, and they, 
the philosophy and the mantra of the school was, we are here to make sure that you make something out of yourself. They cared about us. We were their children. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you uh, right now, uh, uh, I don't find that in, at any level in many places, especially in charter schools where they don't have to uh, take the exams that the uh, public school kids take. They don't have the same standards. Matter of fact, uh, who checks on them? We, our, our students in public schools still have to take specific examinations, but the, the, the charter schools are exempted from, from that. So don't tell me that they're equal. They're not. Some, some are doing fine. I, I'm not saying that. Right. You, I, I would never tell you, a you, person not to send his kid to um, um, a charter school. I wouldn't tell you that. But don't there you tell me. There are some me, charter schools that are doing a right. good job of particularly helping. But don't at, tell me that you're not kids. siphoning off money from the public school. You are. If you're just tuning in, our guest today is a uh, uh, writer and author, uh, Bill Maxwell, who wrote for columns for a long time for the St. Petersburg Times. If you uh, would like to join our conversation, you can call 813-239-9663 or send an email to dj at wmnf.org. Um, we've got Chris from Clearwater who is on the line. Um, Chris from Clearwater, what's up? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I would like to extend a gracious good day to Bill Maxwell. I was a great fan of his. I've read him for years. I love him. Thank you, sir. I'll, I'll always remember this one column you wrote about how white people like myself should learn to address, especially elderly Jack black gentlemen, by sir. You know, and, uh, a minimum honorific to at least recognize their humanity and dignity. Uh, and besides that, thank you, sir. I'm just so happy to hear you're still alive and well and active. But uh, on regard to this subject, I agree everything. You've always said almost everything I've ever read that you, of yours. But uh, I'd like to add one other perspective on charter schools and all that nonsense. Uh, from the perspective of a single male who pays taxes to have no children, never did, never wanted them, and... Uh, but I support 100% public schools. And it, it kills me that this DeClantis administration is undermining public education, especially in regards to uh, the real history. They should be teaching CRT. You're damn right, because it's true. And uh, you know, systemic racism is here. It's been here. It's still here. And these people are trying to perpetuate it at my expense. You know, so they're giving the children of our state a substandard education. I dearly wish the ACLU would back me up to sue them. And, and they'd say, oh, you don't have standing. You don't have children in school. Yes, I do. I have some mine. <laughs> Quick, I hit the dump people. button, John. <laughs> <laughs> These nine people are insisting that, that, that no, our little delicate white flowers can't be bothered. Oh, they can't learn this. Chris, might hurt their feelings. Thanks for the call. I'm going to let I'm going to let Mr. Maxwell respond you, to you. I'll be on, and you too for the hosting. Thank you. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Any response to Chris? I, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, do you think you could you could talk about your experiences in the civil rights movement in a public school today under the DeSantis regime? Could I talk about my... What? Yeah, yeah. Or would that be considered uh, out of bounds? And are you concerned about uh, well, how I kids have are being taught? Well, I have kids in the public school system. Okay, okay I mean, and uh, uh, they're doing fine. <clears throat> 
They are, they are fine teachers, and my daughter takes care of them. <clears throat> my daughter uh, reads to them. They love to read. They travel. I mean, that's what you, that's what you do. That's what you do. Uh, so that's what public schools can facilitate that, yes. too. Um, we've got a, an email from Jerome who asks, with Bill's self-reliance beliefs, I'm curious what he thinks of welfare and food stamps and other public assistance programs. What do, you, what do you think of food stamps and, and public assistance and, and, programs, you, welfare? Do you think we should get rid of it completely, or there needs oh, to be yeah, some well, sort of uh, uh, Well, first of all, I'm not Tim Scott, so uh, <laughs> uh, he's he's intellectually dishonest. But my, my, uh, I have no I have no problem with food stamp. If people are desperate and they arrive there through no fault of their own, then what the hell do we do with them? Take them out back and shoot them? No. Food stamps, yes. Uh, child care, anything that they need to to get them uh, 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 to give them sustenance, to get them uh, on par with other people, fine. So no, I'm, I'm not an anti-welfare, anti, you know, Roosevelt Johnson person. I, people need assistance; they need it, and uh, even even people who don't deserve it. So what do you do? They're on the street. They wind up in your emergency rooms. What do you do with these people? Throw them away? We have a, we have a, a former president who would say yes. Um, let's get rid of them. But we have a former president who created Obamacare, and that has helped so many millions yeah. of people. So I, I'm not an anti-welfare person, no. I, I mean, I know I'm, people would think I am because I'm accused of being a conservative. I'm not a damn conservative either. No, I can tell you that. Yeah, no, none of that. Nonsense. Um, we also have um, Marianne on the line right now. Let's go to Marianne. Hello. Hi, Marianne. Hello. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just want to say I was so delighted to hear Mr. Maxwell on the radio. I've been a longtime fan. I think he's a remarkable intellectual person who's a beacon of light. And I just wish he was on the radio every day because I'd be listening. Thank you. Thanks, Marianne. And I agree with you. You're welcome. Bye. Now, uh, you have spent an interesting time in your retirement as an artist in residence in the Everglades. Now, first of all, I didn't even know there was such a thing. So tell us about your experience as an artist in, in the Everglades. Which you also wrote about for the Forum magazine, the Florida right. Humanities Forum magazine, your experiences. What was that like? That, but... Were you there in August? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was there two years almost. I was there 20, 20 months. And you lived, you survived the mosquitoes. And <clears throat> I did. This uh, was his opportunity to see what it would have been like to be a ranger. It was, but, well, right? It was a dream come true. As a matter of yeah. fact, I fulfilled the dream. Uh, as a, uh, I was part of the artist in residence program, uh, and they gave me an apartment uh, in the Everglades to live in. And they have a studio for artists to come and live. What part of the Everglades is that in? Uh, Pine Island. It's Pine Island, not okay. too far from the uh, main headquarters. All right, there actually are apartments in there for people, uh, and I lived there for. I lived in three, or four different apartments in the Everglades, um, and my job was to write <clears throat> uh, two, two articles uh, about my experiences in the Everglades for, uh, for the organization. So I stayed there a month uh, doing that, and every day I got a chance to go to my favorite places. I got a chance to go uh, from uh, Pine Island down to Flamingo. Every day I got a chance to travel. I got a chance to see every animal, 
uh, that was there, including the uh, dreaded python. Hmm. So I got a chance to do all of that. And I was in nature. I got a chance to go into Florida Bay. I saw the fish. I saw the birds. I would wake up in the morning and look out, and I would see thousands of birds going over uh, my apartment. Uh, I look out in my front yard. There's a deer. You know, so it was uh, it was heaven on earth to me. Now, after I finished uh, the program, the uh, uh, person in charge of um, information at the Everglades asked me if I would um, write for her. I say, well, uh, um, I live in St. Petersburg. I don't see how I can do that. So she said, if I could arrange for you an apartment in the Everglades, would you come and write for me uh, during the centennial? It was the centennial of the, of the uh, National Park Service. So it was a celebration. So I wrote articles for her that were published in the local newspaper in a national um, publication. So that was my job, was to write about the Everglades and the other parks in South Florida. And it was a dream come true. So I got, I got a chance to go to the Dry Tortugas. I got a chance to uh, travel all over uh, all the parks. So it was uh, a kid from uh, Fort Lauderdale who wanted to be a park ranger. Well, I finally got a chance to become a park ranger. That's awesome. In fact, I was given that status. You know, I was actually uh, um, had had certain certain rights in the park. And it, it deepened your your love for the environment. Yes, yes. It it it, it, it was it was everything I wanted to wanted to do. Anything? Uh, what was the most surprising thing about that? The most surprising thing. That's a good. I never thought of that. That's a good question. Uh, the most surprising thing for me. Uh, was the number of volunteers in the Everglades. Some of their work in the Everglades could not get done if people did not volunteer. So what are, what are they doing? What kind of work are they doing? <clears throat> they uh, uh, they, they, they uh, take money from uh, visitors. Uh, they they uh, fly helicopters. They uh, actually uh, uh, commandeer rangers out into the waters to... They do everything. Yeah. So it was uh, quite. In fact, in fact, I was a volunteer. That was my status as a volunteer. <laughs> and uh, so, tell me about the mosquitoes in the summer. The mosquitoes, well, they were. They were they, I, I, let me see if I can remember how to put it. There were three uh, bad seasons in the Everglades, and they all related to mosquitoes. Uh, there was a. Uh, uh, they were bad. They were real bad, and they were a mm-mm-mm. <laughs> so that's how you judge your day in the Everglades. But she didn't mind that at all. No. Um, I want to go to another email that we have. There's, we've got a couple emails, people talking about the self-reliance that we were talking about. So let's get back to that, if you don't mind. Because um, Wendell from downtown St. Pete says he's enjoying the show. As a black man, how can you assure that your ability of self-reliance isn't stripped away by laws that prohibit you from taking on that responsibility? How can you be self-reliant if you are not allowed access to the resources to be self-reliant in the first place? So there's a question for you, I think Mr. It's Maxwell. A, I think it's a fair question, but I, and my answer may not be uh, the correct one. It may even, it may even sound flippant, but uh, my, my mother had a, had a philosophy. Her, her philosophy was... Uh, make sure that you keep the yard clean. Make sure you you keep all the laundry clean. You keep things clean. You keep things tidy because you know in the long run, that may be all you're going to ever have. 
being a, a citizen of this country, I, I'm the last person to assume that, uh, that there's a big burden on people, poor people, uh, to make it. There's a huge burden on you, which doubles uh, your responsibility to keep things clean, tidy, and healthy. Just because uh, the governor is who he is, just because of that, that does not mean that I don't have a responsibility to give my kids a bowl of Cheerios and a banana in the morning and a glass of orange juice. That's mm-hmm. my responsibility. I don't care. I don't care what anyone else does. I have to do this. I have to keep my car running. It's an old car. It's a beat up old car. So what? The point is that I have to take care of that. So I don't. I don't really want to hear um, uh, excuses about. Uh, about why I can't take care of myself. And by the way, racism is systemic. It, it, one thing affects another. When a bank will not permit Bill Maxwell to get a loan, that impacts my children. Mm-hmm. I know that. I'm, I'm no fool. I, that, in, that impacts every, That means that I cannot pay my rent. I know that. So what do you do instead? Sit on the corner? Sit under a tree? No, you don't do that. You do what men did when I was a child. You would see an old black man with <clears throat> broken down pickup trucks, with broken down lawnmowers on them, going out trying to find yards to cut. You do what you have to do. You don't sit around and be nothing. Mm-hmm. That's my philosophy of life. And, and again, God is not going to help you. And the idea that there is not uh, systemic racism is is so ridiculous because look at the legacy of racism. And just in St. Petersburg yeah, alone, the right. black people were not a- allowed to own property north of Central Avenue. That's right. Um, and if you wonder why there are so many black people who live in South St. Pete, that's the legacy of racism. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know. And it doesn't go away when... You know, three years after you changed the law. Right. It just doesn't work that way. But but I can also show you places in South St. Petersburg where families are thriving. They're not wealthy, but they are families who are healthy. They're taking care of themselves and they're self-sufficient. And so, I mean, it it can happen. And you know what? It has to happen. Otherwise, uh, you're not going to... uh, go anywhere. But laws like the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 <laughs> Voting Rights Act were important because I mean, it allowed you to leave the farms That's and right. get a job indoors. You were able to vote without fear. You were able to be a real part of society, right? That's right. And, and that, you know, you, you must, do you look back on those days with some pride, I would hope? I don't know about pride. I look back on them. I think that, I, that, that there's a lesson to be learned. I don't know if I take, uh, I don't know what you mean, you know, pride. Well, no. not everybody did it. Not everybody got involved. No, in but it. it's, it's, uh, it's, I feel fortunate. Well, did, what did your mom think about that? My, well, my mom is, is dead now. Yes, but, but my at, mom, the time, uh, at the time you decided, I'm going to go to St. Augustine and put my life on the line. My, my mom always told us, you know, you better, you know, my mom didn't allow us to sit around. She didn't allow that. You know, you had everybody, you had to get up and go do something. You had to work. My mom did not allow the girls or the boys uh, uh, to sit around. And by the way, I got to tell you, <clears throat> being a migrant farm worker was good for me. First of all, you lived on the white man's property. You did not live on the man's property if you didn't work. 
you were there because that's what your job was, was to work. So I learned that ethic about about working from being a poor person, from being deprived, from being brutalized. I watched migrant farm workers disappear. We were treated badly. We had nowhere to go. For, we had no bathrooms in the fields. Women and men had to go behind trees or dig a hole behind Palmetto. Well, I was raised that way. But the point is that that did nothing to, to blunt my sense of taking care of myself and making it better for my daughters, my son, and my grandchildren. So I would say this. Uh, poverty made me mean as hell. Being <laughs> poor made me mean. And I'd be damned if I'll take it from anyone. I'm going to let you abuse me because I'm poor. No. Well, well, you also have a strong voice and you're, you're, you're fearless in your opinions. Where'd that come from? Same place. I mean, <laughs> you know. I, I mean, I, I think uh, there was a recent interview with you, and, and that was one of the things is uh, advice for writers. One was learn the craft. That's right. Which means what? Um, learn how to write a good sentence, you know, and learn how to put them together and learn how to use transitions. Learn how to learn the right word, you yes. know. Uh, Ernest Hemingway uh, was asked one time how many how many times did he write the last uh, uh, sentence of uh, fair of of uh, fair to arms? He said, uh, you know, something like thirty one. Mm-hmm. And a person, well, why did you write it, rewrite it thirty one times? And he said, to get the words right, and that's what writing is. You get the words right. And the other thing you said was, you've got to be courageous. That's right. Um. We've got just a little bit of time left, so I just want to remind everyone about how you can read, find Bill Maxwell's work, because we've had a lot of people reaching out and how glad they are to hear you on the show, Bill, and or want to read your writing. So the book is Maximum Vantage, a collection of columns from the St. Petersburg Times. That's available on Amazon. People can get it there. Um, your also work is also in the Florida Humanities book. Um, uh, and I forget what the name of the book is, which is terrible that I'm zoning out on it. But what is it? Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time in Florida, right. Once Upon a Time in Florida. It's a collection of 50 articles from the Forum magazine. And you can join the Florida Humanities and get Forum. Get Forum for free. And Bill writes in Forum on a regular basis. So something coming out, um, coming up in the spring about his experiences playing football in the Jim Crow era. So, Bill... Uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Really, really appreciate it very much. It's been great. We could spend hours talking. And thanks for putting up with me. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks, DJ Spaceship, for answering the phones. And thanks, John Dunn, for running the board. This is WMNF Tampa. Alternative Radio is coming up next.